0: Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we are so indeed humbled and grateful that you have given us such a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the wonderful incarnation of your Son, sent to save, sent to reclaim sinners, Father, we are those people, the church, who our message to the world is indeed, Come, behold the wondrous mystery. So even, Lord God, today we get to say that. We get to say, Come, behold the mystery, as we now endeavor and engage in this time where we proclaim Christ. So, Father, be with us by the power of your Spirit so that the name of your Son may be lifted high, and thereby your name glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, it's an interesting thing. I've been watching the news lately, just like you have, reading the papers and just living life, really. And I've seen something that I know all of us are familiar with, and that is the fact that there are certain people that just fascinate us, isn't it? Whether it's politicians or maybe it's uh, celebrities, maybe it's some fictitional character that you like in a, in a comic book or in a novel or in a, a movie, whatever. Certain people just fascinate us. And maybe who fascinates us, like I experienced this past weekend with my family at Christmas, maybe you'll experience it later, that uncle that you have, right? Right. He's either, depending on your perspective, he's either the crazy one or he's the life of the party. But either way, he fascinates us. But that that begs a question that we have to ask in our mind. Why is it that certain people captivate us? I think that the fascination that we have in others and why we like to look at other people's lives and dress like them and act like them and whatever the case may be, I think that what that comes from is a lingering desire... That all of us presently have to be more than we currently are. The lingering desire to be more than we currently are. Now, we all think of more, we all dream of more, we pursue more. As a matter of fact, every store that is going to come across your screen to market to you is going to market that desire that you have for more. You need that coat. You need those pair of pants. By the way, why don't you go ahead and get that BMW that you've been longing for. You need, you deserve, why do we want more? But Have you ever wondered why that is? Why we want more? Today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a particular people that I believe the most fascinating people there are. I want to talk to you about really the people who are made for more, the people who will enjoy more, I want to talk to you today about the people of God. Now, what does it mean to be people of God? Listen carefully. The people of God are a certain people on the earth who are God's own possession. A certain people on the earth who are God's own possession. Now, some of you might suggest, wait a minute, certain people on earth. Some of you say, well, aren't all people the people of God? that, we just have to simply say a biblical qualified answer. We can say no. Everyone owes their life to God. Everyone should be al- aligned with God. But not all are the people of God. God's people are His particular possession that He has entrusted with His plan. And listen to this. Not only has God entrusted His people with this plan, but God, in some mysterious way, has chosen to carry out His plan through His people. Now stop just for a minute and think of the amazing implications of what I'm suggesting to you, that God desires to carry out His plan through His people. This is the God who just simply spoke and the mountains were lifted high into the sky. This is the God who simply just spoke and the depths of the seas came about because of His design. The power of the wind is at His command. And this God has entrusted you and I with His plan. Now, of course, He didn't just leave it to us, right? That'd be impossible. He didn't just simply leave it to us. Listen carefully to your Pastor. He has secured and accomplished His purpose through us by enabling us in the power of His Spirit to carry out His plan. So what is the plan of God? We're entrusted to carry out that plan. Do we know what the plan of God is? Sure we do. What's the plan of God? It's for Himself to be known. God desires to be known. Now, what do we mean when we say God desires to be known? This isn't some casual knowledge that we're talking about God desiring to be known. I can tell you with certainty, I can tell you that I know Alan Jackson, just inducted to the Hall of Fame, by the way. I know him. I have met him, shook his hand one time on the front row of my church in Newman, Georgia, Unity Baptist, saying right beside him some gospel hymns fantastic. But anyway, I can tell you that I know him. I can tell you that I've I've met him, but that doesn't mean that I know him. I don't know his favorite color. I don't know which food he likes. I even know his mama, but that doesn't mean that I know him, or knew his mama, I should say. What we mean when we say that we know God is we mean... For ourselves to be in Him. It's not some casual knowledge. It means that when we say that we know God, we're saying for us to live is Him. We mean to worship Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to be His. And for He to be ours. That's a great thought. We get to belong to our beloved. And our beloved gets to belong to us because we are his people. Now, let me tell you where we are at Oxford. Of course, this is the week before Christmas Eve, and so we are at a critical part of our series here at Oxford. This is week four, of course, of our seven-part series. From this point on in our series, since we're at four out of seven, everything takes a turn. Everything. So this is important. I hope that you've brought your ears today to listen and your pen today to make sure that your ears don't forget what you listened, uh, so that we can write down what we we're talking about today. But we've entitled this series Christmas and the Temple. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to answer why is it that the most significant life of all, why is it that the life of Jesus chose to live his life in the shadow of the temple? And what we've been doing is we've been following the gospel of Luke. And we found that Luke brackets his entire gospel around the temple. Luke starts in the temple with John the Baptist, daddy, Zechariah, and then takes us from the nativity scene to 40 days later as Jesus is then presented in the temple. And then Luke, of course, is the only gospel writer who gives us the only glimpse of Jesus as a young boy. And guess where he is? He's in the temple And then, of course, in the final moments of Jesus's life, before the cross, before the resurrection, you know where Jesus is? Well, he's in and around the temple. And so we need to ask the question, why does Luke show Jesus in the shadow of the cross? And what is it that Luke wants us to learn about Jesus in the shadow of the temple? So this is week four, like I said, and so I want to catch us up to make sure that we're tracking together because really my intention standing behind this pulpit here, the sacred desk, is not to just simply feed your mind with facts. That's boring. What I want to do is I want to fill your heart with joy as you and I together learn how every page of Scripture whispers the name of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. This is a big book, right? Daunting if you've never read it. Maybe the reason that you've never read it all the way through is because you're like, oh my goodness, how do I get started? Well, the same way you eat an elephant, just one bite at a time. Just go right after it and get in there. Whatever you choose, just make sure you finish it all. But have you ever read the Bible and wondered how everything fits together? Have you ever wondered that? What does Psalms have to do with John? What does Revelation have to do with Daniel? What does Leviticus have to do with anything, right? How does it all fit together? Well, the purpose of this series is to show you that Christ is the key that unlocks the meaning of every text. And so in this series, we're demonstrating just that by looking at Christmas and that time when we celebrate the Word becoming flesh and showing what that event, the Incarnation, has to do with what this major biblical theme that you can't read the Bible and not see this. What does the Incarnation have to do with the temple? And so, what's the big deal about the temple? Well, God's presence. When the angel comes and announces what they're to call Jesus, they call him Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. So already, just from those two things, you can see the implication. It's, it's easy, hopefully. The big deal about the temple is God's presence. And Jesus, when he comes, he's called God with us. And so already we're seeing how they all fit. So in the first week, we learn that when God created, he demonstrated a desire to be known. God is a God of Revelation. And we wouldn't know that unless he told us that he was a God of revelation because he's transcendent, he's holy, he's other than what we are. Whatever we are, he's the opposite. He's other than what we are. So the only way that we would know that there is a God is if he chose to reveal himself to us. And, of course, the only way that he can reveal himself to us is, well... He had to create us, and so thankfully he did. Aren't you glad God created you this morning? Anyone regret that? We have counseling after the service. So anyway, you understand. It's important for us to understand these things. So uh, after that, in in week two, we learn that God desired for his presence to fill the earth. And we saw amazingly that he chose to fill the earth with the knowledge of himself through the people that he created. He didn't just simply write it in the skies or wake us up every morning with some big booming earthquake to let us know that he was there. Instead, what he did was he chose to make himself known through people, through us. And, of course, we learned from last week in week three, unfortunately, humanity deliberately disobeyed through the influence of an enemy, this crafty serpent called Satan, But then we learned as well that because the plans of God are fixed, there's no scheme of man, nor power of hell that can keep God from accomplishing his purpose. And so on that note, I want us to catch up where we are. Take your Bible today and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Turn back all the way to the beginning. If you can't find Genesis, just go to the first page of the Bible, the big first book. It's real easy for me to tell you how to get to Genesis. Ask me to tell you how to get to Habakkuk. That may take us a little longer, but anyway, Genesis is real easy. Go to Genesis chapter 3, and let me just say this. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, hopefully everyone has a Bible here today. Everyone has a Bible, right? Hold up your Bible. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and hold it up. All right, good. If you don't have a Bible, that's good. See, some that don't have a binding. They have a battery. That's great. Whatever way, uh, if your phone, whatever, just make sure that you have a Bible this morning because I really want you to see this. And if you don't have a Bible, scooch over to someone who's close. They don't mind sharing. After all, it's Christmas, right? Just make sure that you have a Bible in front of you. So today, the reason I want you to really have this is because today's going to be a little different sermon than what we're used to. You're already thinking, well, Godly pastor, you're already speaking faster than what you normally do. Well, that's just because we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's listen up and make sure that we're there. All right, so this is regular speed. So it's going to be a little different sermon because what we're going to do is we're going to flip through the Bible. I know I've uh, been here for a little while. You're not used to that. You're used to letting the Bible sort of slip off your lap every now and then. But I'm going to need you to be proactive today and have your fingers ready to flip. And you're going to hear me say something today that I don't think that I've ever said. I've tried to tell you something that is contrary. I've tried to tell you not to trust the chapter headings and chapter divisions. But today, what I want to do is I want us to look and be grateful for the editors of our Bible who has given us chapter divisions. So, even though I've told you not to trust those, today, well, we're going to trust those. They aren't inspired, those chapter divisions and chapter headings, but today, they're going to help us navigate our way through Holy Scripture. So, go to chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 3, and let me read the Bible, because we're certain that what the Bible says is inspired beyond what I say. So listen to Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 14 and 15. I want to read this, and then we'll go from there. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, told you last week something that I want you to learn, that that is called the first gospel, the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. This is what we have here. Uh, when we read Genesis 3.15, what we learn is that the this plan that God has to establish his reign over all the earth is not going to be undone, No matter how diabolical the plot is, to the contrary, God's will will be done. So this promise that is spoken by the God of creation is important, and I wanted to read it, because what this promise does is it's echoed in every other page of Scripture, and it anchors humanity for the approaching storm that's coming. Look at the details of the text. Look at chapter 3 and verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the Eve. Literally, she was the Eve. That word Eve in the Hebrew means mother of all living. Now, what's the significance of Eve being called the mother of all living? What does that mean? It means that the condition of being able to see, the condition of being cursed, the condition of being sinful, the condition of being outside the presence of God, this condition has spread to all men, as Romans 5 says, because all have sinned. Adam names his wife the mother of all living. Sin has spread to all men. Then look at what happens in chapter 4. You have a chapter division there, and the heading of your Bible probably says Cain and Abel. If you know anything about the Bible, you know the story, right? Cain kills We're not even a few verses and all of a sudden we see sin's devastating consequence. A brother rises up and kills his brother. And then look at chapter 4. You have this poetry section right at the end of chapter 4. You have Lamech. He's sort of waving his fist at God. He says this in verse 24, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, he's waving his fist at God and say, Well, God cursed Cain. I'll do better than God. And whoever does this, then I'll curse them worse than God did. But it isn't all bad. Look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore him a son, and she called his name Seth for God has Seth for me literally God has appointed for me another seed another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him and then look at verse 26 to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh and at that time people began to call upon the covenant name, the name of the Lord. So what do we learn from that? We learn that even though sin has had its devastating effect on all the world, there's still an undercurrent of God's plan. There's still an undercurrent of God's grace. God has anchored humanity in the hope of Genesis 3.15, that God is one day going to raise up this offspring of a woman who's going to defeat the serpent. And so all the whole time we're reading the Bible, we're looking, we're longing, we're saying, who is this one? Then look at chapter 5. Don't quickly glance over chapter 5. Look at verse 3. I can't mention this, but I want to say it. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. That's Genesis language, Genesis 1. And named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. Now, don't quickly glance over that. Don't be so engrossed either by the 930 years. Man, Adam lived a long time. It's not how long Adam lived. The problem is, is that Adam died. Remember what God told Adam? You're dust. And the dust you shall return. Sin has had its dominating effects. And so when we read the death of Adam, it should cause us to weep. Then we look at chapter 6 through 9. Of course, that's the flood narrative. It's hopeless. But then God raises up Noah. Now, I want you to skip ahead in your Bible for time. Skip ahead to chapter 12. What I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 3. Now, the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land that I'll show you. And I will make you of a great nation. Look at this. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And then look at this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Bless, 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 right? Look at that word, blessed. Have we ever heard that phrase before? Well, of course we have. We're reading our Bible. We're paying attention. We know that it's one theme all throughout. Of course we've heard the word bless. That reminds us of... Genesis 1.28, where God blessed Adam and Eve and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. So, do you see what God's doing? He is preparing a people to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. So this is our first point this morning. God is reestablishing His presence. He is preparing to fill the earth with Himself as the waters cover the sea, and the way that He does it is the same way that He chose to do it in the beginning, through a people. Number one, God calls a people. Of course, these people are not just any people. They're people who have faith. And what does it mean to have faith? It means that these people who, despite what they see, despite what they experience, they believe what God says. Now, we have to pick up the pace because I want to take you all the way through the Old Testament. So we got to pick up the pace. Uh, What comes after Genesis? What's the book that comes after Genesis? Very good. I'm glad you're quick on it. Otherwise, we'd have to wait. Exodus. That's right. What does the story of the Exodus tell? Exodus tells the story of God saving his people from the bondage of Egypt. And it's after the people come from Egypt that they learn that they are God's treasured possession. Go over to Exodus just for a moment. when we get to Exodus... We see God demonstrating in a dramatic fashion in this locust and, and red Sea, rivers of blood, all of these things that we've read about that Charleston Heston showed us, right? We know all these things because we've seen the Ten Commandments or read the Bible. Hopefully you've read the Bible before you saw the Ten Commandments, but either way. Anyway, it's after all of these things that God finally demonstrates that He desires to be their people and He desires to be their God. Now, we say that language, right? Desire. God desires. God desires. Don't think that when we're talking about God's desires, we're talking about just some pithy thing over here. God desiring something, listen, isn't God asking for permission? He doesn't say, may I have that. God desiring something means that he is just simply letting us in on his plan. God is going to have what he desires. He has to. He must. He's God. The problem isn't isn't God's desire. The problem is our desire or maybe the lack thereof. So God, what does he do in Exodus? He saved his people to demonstrate his love for them. And the problem that they faced was not of the chains of their Egyptian taskmasters. The problem that they faced was something that was much deeper than that. The problem that the Hebrews faced was their heart. They had a sin issue. So as we make our way all the way through Exodus... Uh, we weave through it and we see that it's easier to take the people out of Egypt. But taking Egypt out of the people, that's a longer path. The story of Exodus, though, it's it's permeated with God's presence. There's no way that anyone can read Exodus and say that God is absent. We open up the book of Exodus and we see the people, they're in bondage, but they're not forgotten. They're oppressed by a cruel taskmaster's, but... All through it, they are sustained by the providence of God. They're in the grip of a mighty oppressor, but they're not out of the reach of the mighty God who will act on behalf of his people to save them. So God's desire is the entire reason for His delivering them. And what is God's desire? God's desire is that He will be their God and they will be His people. Listen to the text. Listen, you can flip if you want to since you're so close. Genesis 6, and uh, I'll start in verse 2. Look at what uh, the Bible says. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh, the Lord, I didn't make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Cana, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, pay attention, don't miss this. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians sold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your Elohim. I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke with us to the people of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses their broken spirit and harsh slavery. But what a glorious thought that is. Do you see? I wish I could preach an entire message just on that, and maybe I will one day. God's desire is to be yours. Your desire is to be His. God meets us there with this wonderful union of, of He being the culmination of all of our longing, all of our desires. No wonder Johann Sebastian Bach wrote Yeshu, joy of man's desiring, because he knew there's nothing greater for us to desire than Jesus. Jesus. Simply Jesus. God establishes His presence to His people. But the way that He does it, don't miss this, is through saving them through salvation. And listen, salvation isn't complete once the people are out of Egypt. Unfortunately, as we go through Exodus, we flip through and we come up to chapter 32. And if you have your Bible there, chapter 32, it should be dog-eared or, or marked up in some way because chapter 32 is one of the most significant passages in the whole of Scripture. Genesis 32, of course, in my Bible, right at the heading, it says the golden calf. Now, let me just say, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's not a good thing. We talk about golden calves in churches and we, you know, make little jokes about what's your golden calf. That's an idol. Here God has accomplished their salvation and they erect for themselves an idol. This is the dark chapter in the life of the people of God. Listen, all this to tell us that it is easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of the people. But thankfully, listen, listen, thankfully, God is dedicating to saving his people all the way through. From beginning to end, no matter what it takes, even the sending of his own self, the Son, he will have his people as his possession. So his dedication brings us to the second point this morning. God's people anticipate His presence. And this is where it's going to get a little deep for just a minute. I'm like a, I feel like I'm a surgeon up here telling you, all right, we've already made the first cut. Now we're going to go just a little deeper. So, you know, uh, buckle up, take a pain pill, whatever you need to do. And we're not going to stay here long, though, I promise. But this point really is what the entire series hinges upon. So if you miss this, this is your pastor, I'm warning you. I've got the notes in front of me. I know if you miss this... You've missed a major portion of understanding Scripture. Not just the sermon, but understanding Scripture. So listen up. So God saves the people to establish His presence amongst the people. But the point is that the people, are, they're in need of more than just a physical deliverance from an enemy. But God's dedicated to saving his people. He's dedicated to loving them with an everlasting love. So despite all of these things, what's he do? He gives them a blueprint from heaven. Moses is on the mountain. He's receiving all these things from God, the Ten Commandments. He also receives a blueprint to all that he plans to do. And he tells them to take that blueprint and build a small-scale model. God sets them apart and gives them the task to build a structure that will serve to show the way that things will be one day. He seeks to give them this structure that will demonstrate the way that things will be one day as the knowledge of the Lord, the presence of the Lord is permeating all the earth. What's God tell the people to do? He tells them to build a tabernacle. He tells them to build a tent of meeting. And what's so significant about the tabernacle? Well, the same thing that's significant about the temple. The significance of the tabernacle is the presence of the Lord, God's meeting place with man. Let's go up here. I want to show you. uh, This is a model here of the tabernacle. You have all of these vestures, and we'll get into those vestures in just a minute. But this tabernacle is what God told them to meet. This, This was the tent of meeting now this tabernacle of course of exodus is going to be later replaced by the temple so let's go to that picture so this then turns into this so now we're all the way in first kings we've made it all the way from exodus all the way to first kings and that quick but look what happens here so go back just a minute go back to the tabernacle this then becomes the meeting place, and so God's dwelling in tents. David looks and says, how can I live in a palace and God live in a tent? So then God commissioned Solomon to build him the extravagant temple. So let's go back to that temple and uh, leave it up there for just a minute. This temple, which is a picture of the tabernacle, is intended to picture the Garden of Eden. Now, what was so significant about the Garden of Eden? You remember? You remember? The Garden of Eden was the place where God met with man. So what's so significant about the temple? What's significant about the temple is God's presence. So this then building this structure in the middle of one spot on the earth is intended to announce to the world and declare that one day God will walk with humanity. Now what I want to do is I want to show you a chart. And I want to prove this to you, and I've chosen to do it this way for time's sake. There's some significant parallels between Exodus 25 through 31, which is the tabernacle, which is a model of the temple, and then Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, all of this chart here, it's going to be available on our website under this sermon. I have every manuscript of every sermon that I preached in recent times. It's all there. It'll be here for you if you want to look at it. Don't try to write it down. In the creation, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1-2, there's seven speech acts. God said, God said, God said, times seven. The tabernacle and the temple, seven speech acts. So what's that? It's letting us know automatically that the structure is a reconstruction of God's good creation. Then there are certain elements in creation. There's this God who stands above the heavens. Remember, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. So that's, that's all there in creation. There's the heavens, there's the sun, there's the moon, there's the stars there's gold and precious metals, there's the sea, there's the land, there's cherubims all guarding the way. And in the tabernacle, there's this holy of holies, which represents God who stands above creation. You've got the ark of the covenant, which is guarded by two angels, cherubims. Then you've got a curtain, which pictures the sky with blues and purples and scarlets. And then in that temple, you have lamps. And those seven lamps are there to picture the sun, the moon, the stars. And In the temple as well, you've got gold, you've got precious metals, and out in the courtyard, you've got the visible sea and the earth and this large basin called the sea, this altar of uncut stone representing the earth, all of these things to show us what the temple is. And then, of course, in uh, creation, God rests after he created and while they're building the temple, God commanded the people to celebrate the Sabbath after they build the, the tabernacle to rest. So God then comes and he evaluates the work and he blesses it. And Moses then comes and evaluates the tabernacle and he blesses the work of the tabernacle. God made a male and female after a certain pattern. And the tabernacle was made itself after a pattern that God showed Moses. The creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by the fall. And the building of the tabernacle, of course, as I've already shown you, is followed by the golden calf. Now, why do I labor so much time to show you these things? Because what I want you to see is how the whole Bible fits together. I don't want you to just skip over Exodus where you say, oh man, this gets so boring, altars of ends. Read that and remember in your mind, if you do what I'm telling you, you'll never read the Bible the same way. You'll read it in a better way. Instead of it being some duty that you do to get through the Bible in a year plan, instead of doing that, what it will be, it will be a delight for you because you'll see how every page fits together as a whole. May not understand more pages than others, but you'll at least have this undergirding current of saying, what does this have to do with God's plan to bring salvation to the world. So all of this is telling us a story of God setting apart a part of people to model his intentions for the whole earth. And just as the Exodus was a small picture of the salvation that God would accomplish through King Jesus, so the building of the temple is a small picture of what he intends for the whole world. So remember, when we're talking about God's intentions We're talking about impending realities. And so what's so significant about the temple? Remember, and I've said this, and I'm going to say this. It's not the gold or the preciousness. What's so significant about the temple is God's presence. And what will one day the whole earth be full of? God's presence. Who is going to know God's presence? Everyone. Who is going to enjoy God's presence? Only those who are his people. So who on earth are his people? Those who have faith and are longing for this seed of the woman. Whom Galatians tells us, Matthew tells us, the whole New Testament tells us, Isaiah tells us, even Genesis tells us, is the Son of God. The temple, listen, was temporary. The temple was never meant to be permanent. This is why Jesus comes and says, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. And everybody ready to throw stones at him, right? The temple was never a permanent plan. The temple was intended to point towards what is permanent. And there again, don't miss this. God chose to use people and our efforts to direct and remind the rest of the world of the reality that's coming. So God's intentions are impending realities. You can't escape this. So say, well, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe how the Bible fits together. And really, I don't care how the Bible fits together. Listen to me carefully. Listen. It really doesn't matter what we believe or don't believe. This is God's purpose. You see how treasured we are to have his plan, to have his purpose, to know that one day, as Joel tells us, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of him as the waters cover the sea. And I don't know about you, but Joel's telling us there that uh, the sea is pretty much, what is it, 98% water, something like that? The sea is pretty much all water, right? It's Everything's water in the sea. And Joel's telling us as a picture the whole earth is going to be covered presence of God. What's going to be so good about that day? Well, those who are His people, we're finally going to be able to know what the sound of God walking in the garden is like. I can't imagine that. But God calls a people. His people anticipate His presence. And number three, God's people tell the world Tell the world the good news of this better world that's coming. So why does God call a people? Of all the people on the earth, why Abraham? Of all the people on the earth, why Noah? Of all the people on the earth, why did he create Adam and Eve? Why did he skip and go to somebody else who wouldn't? All these questions we can ask. So why does God call a people and then instruct them to anticipate his presence by building a structure that will declare God's intention to make his dwelling place amongst men? Why does he do that? Why didn't he just write it in the sky? Here's the reason. So that his particular people can be a royal priesthood And a light to a world full of darkness. So that God can entrust his ways, his plan with us. So that people can look at the people of God and long to become what we are. This is why Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. This is why he says you are the light of the world. You should leave the ones who you meet with a flavor of the presence of God. We are those people who know God and who are known by Him. And I hope that you feel the weight of that this morning. I hope that you feel the weight of what God has entrusted you and empowered you. You feel that weight and you carry that burden, that delightful burden, that dangerous duty of delight all your life. This is who we are as His people. You and I are to serve the world as a light to them, to call them away from stumbling and hurting themselves in the dark. You see, being people of God is not something that we do. It's who we are. It's who we are. And this is what's so beautiful about Jesus. The who we are is not through the blood of goats or bulls or any of those things. The who we are is through the precious blood of the spotless Lamb of God, the Son, King Jesus. This is the way that Peter describes who we are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that you may proclaim how excellent he is. This God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter reminds him, remember once you were not a people. But now, by His grace, you are God's people. Once, you didn't know what mercy was. Now, that's all you know is mercy. You see, here's what we say. This is why the Jews were entrusted to build the temple, and this is why God allowed it to be torn down. Because there was a true and better temple that came. I'm skipping ahead, but uh next week, don't miss next week because we're going to see this. You see, God calls you and I the temple of God. And that word that he uses in Corinthians is not just the outside temple, the word for temple. That's a rainace. He didn't use that. He could have in the Greek. Instead, he uses the word naos. You are the holy of holies. You are the place that represents the presence of God on the earth. This is not something that you do. This is who we are. And so we say and we know that God's intentions are His impending realities. And so we say that a better world is coming. We are His people and we anticipate His coming in the way that we live, in the way that we love. And so we want the world to prepare with us for this day that will both be the end of days and the beginning of every day. That's who we are. So this morning, I just want to ask you, are you ready for that? Are you living that way right now as his people, as his particular and peculiar possession? It is inevitable, listen, it is inevitable that one day you will be in the presence of God. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It is inevitable because he's God. But the question is, this is the reality that you'll face. Will you shrink at his presence, trying to hide? Or will you stand in his presence? Not on your own. But being held by and leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus, this one who has, by his cross has covered a multitude of your sins, and so you're able to stand there forgiven, free, loved. You see, one way is a way of life. The other way is a way of death. My prayer for you this morning is simple. My prayer for you this morning is that you respond to this God with love, with adoration, with faith. Respond to this God who has gone through such great lengths to save you, to move heaven and earth, to bring you to Himself. He's calling you home. And what that means is that you will be with Him forever. I pray that's the desire of your heart, to know him, to be with him. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for loving us, for demonstrating your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, separated from you, Lord God, on the backside of the wilderness, sacrificing to idols, you called us out of that darkness to enjoy your marvelous light. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you today, if there's one here today that they can say that they are not longing for your presence, I pray right now that you would convict their heart, that they would feel the weight of their sin crushing them. And then, Lord God, at the same time, they would see the window of forgiveness that's there for them. They would respond to this God who is calling them to himself. Come home come home you who are weary come home let them respond to you in faith and give themselves to you in jesus name and all of god's people said amen we pray god will use this message for his glory in your life if you would like more information please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.